Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe, and this is the Expat Money Show. Today's guest is the news editor over at antiwar.com and hosts the daily podcast Antiwar News with Dave DeCamp. In this episode, we will be discussing the geopolitics as we head into a possible World War III. Not a pleasant topic, I know, but one that I think is very valuable to have right now. Please welcome to the show, Dave DeCamp. Dave, how are you? I'm good, Mikkel. Thanks for having me on. Pleasure is all mine. Maybe spend a few minutes and kind of walk us through your backstory. How did you get working with antiwar.com? How did you end up deciding this is what you were going to dedicate your life and your work to? Yeah, so for those not familiar with antiwar.com, it's a website that's been around since 1995. It was founded by Eric Garris and Justin Romando, two pretty hardcore libertarians. And what it kind of turned into is a news source. You know, we publish news stories and opinion pieces that are anti-war, non-interventionist from across the political spectrum. So it's like kind of single issue coalition. And for me, I haven't been doing it that long. I started writing for antiwar.com 2018, 2019, just sending in articles. And we got along really well. And they asked me if I wanted to do be the news editor and, and focus on the news. And I started full time. So it's my job in 2020. And for me, my journey, I used to work on boats. I went to maritime college and went around on ships. And then I was working on the Staten Island Ferry. And I was never really that into politics, but I was always very anti-war. And it was around the Trump-Hillary times when everybody was hyper-focused on politics. And I felt like kind of both sides were missing, you know, what I saw the true evil of our government was its overseas empire. And Trump had some good rhetoric you know, against the Iraq wars and stuff. But he also said he was going to bomb the terrorists and their families. And he did that when he came into office. And it was really 2018 when the Saudis blew up a school bus in Yemen with the U.S. provided bomb, you know, using their U.S. provided airplanes. The U.S. was totally supporting them in that war. That really woke me up. And it was just around that time I started writing more and started getting published at antiwar.com and and just felt really passionate about it. And and it just kind of My life took me in that direction. Well, it's interesting for today's conversation because as we were chatting before the interview, I've listened to, I would say realistically, without exaggerating, probably 200, 200 some on, probably about 200 episodes of your podcast. And I think I found it right at the very beginning. And I've got my, I don't know if you guys can see it in the video, I've got my antiwar.com shirt on today. So I'm a big fan of your work. Now, it is interesting that you do come from a background with nautical because actually I remember in one of the episodes you were talking about how many miles these ships are going close to each other in the Taiwan Strait. And it was like, well, I actually have a background in this. And I was like, does he really though? Like, I mean, I've been on a sailboat sailboat as well. <laughs> I couldn't tell you if that's close or it's far away, but actually you do have real insights there. So that's amazing. So, okay. So let's jump in straight away to the subject matter because there's two things actually. First of all, I don't want people to listen to this episode and say, well, why are we talking about the geopolitics of war on a podcast about being an expat? Why aren't we just talking about the financial side or things like that? So. There's two reasons for this that I think that this is going to be a really important conversation. And it's really above and beyond the fact that if we do have or arguably are already in World War III, that it's going to affect every human being on planet Earth. I mean, that is a given and everyone should understand this. I guess one of the main reasons that I want to have you on is that 
I want people to understand that this is a really real thing that's happening right now, that the US and NATO are aggressive on many fronts. It's not just in one direction. And considering the main job or, or my work is relocating people to other countries, I want to make sure that where we're moving them to is not going to be in the firing lines. We want to move them to safe countries, non-interventionist countries, like we talked about in your story at the beginning. And so I definitely see that this is a very valuable piece. The other piece that I want to mention be kind of as a preface it to today's conversation is I am not an alarmist. I'm not a doomsday person whatsoever. I'm actually a super upbeat, happy, positive person about the world and what's going on. So I don't want to have today's conversation come over as overly dark or, or me just kind of hyping up things that are not there. But after listening to your program for a year and going through the geopolitics every day, not just yours, but many things, these are legit, real concerns. So I guess that's kind of my preamble out of the way, but maybe give the audience a quick kind of breakdown on on what's happening and why we think that World War Three might be happening. Yeah. So you mentioned that you're not an alarmist and I'm not really an alarmist myself. I'm sure you could tell from listening to my show. I just follow these events, you know, on a daily basis. And, you know, there's a lot of cause for concern for a lot of people that don't pay attention to it every day. They might not realize how serious things are. And really, of course, you know, the big issue, which most people are focusing on now is the war in Ukraine. And for good reason that there's a lot of focus and coverage of that, because where we are today, you know, I couldn't imagine that we would be at this point, you know, funding this proxy war right on Russia's border. About two years ago, if you would have told me that, I wouldn't have believed you. You know, there was always kind of the potential for this conflict. It was brewing for a long time. But things have gotten really bad. And specifically with just the U.S. and NATO involvement in the war in Ukraine, that they're not just giving Ukraine weapons. They're providing Ukraine with intelligence for targeting Russian troops. Ukraine has been launching a lot of attacks inside Russia. And this is something, you know, from our you know non-interventionist point of view, you always try to put the shoe on the other foot sort of a strategic empathy, as some diplomats call it, real diplomats, not the ones that are in the Biden administration right now. But, you know, that's key to trying to understand. And for expats and people like you that travel a lot, that's part of, I'm sure for me, that's why I like to travel is to get an understanding of what it's like for people in other parts of the world. And we can't really fathom what it would be like if the U.S. was engaged in some sort of war in Mexico where Canada and Russia was on the other end of it, you know, and they were armed with Russian weapons, using Russian intelligence. Just recently, there was this group of, they say they're Russians, but they've been fighting for Ukraine since 2014, since there was the U.S.-backed coup in 2014 that threw out Viktor Yanukovych, who was the more Russia-friendly president. And that sparked a civil war in the eastern Donbass region with the Russian-speaking population that were, wanted more to be closer to Russia than the West. So anyway, these Russians started fighting for Ukraine then. And one of the groups, they're called the Russian Volunteer Corps, and they are openly neo-Nazi. This isn't some exaggeration. It's not Russian propaganda. That's what all the Western coverage has said about them. Their leader is openly white nationalist. They attacked Russia. They crossed the border into the Belgrade region and they had U.S. armored vehicles and NATO rifles. And I mean, we just can't even fathom a group of Nazis invading the U.S. from Canada with Russian weapons. So that's just how deep, how far we are. And the U.S. and NATO keep escalating involvement. You know, one of the big things is the kind of weapons that they're providing. You know, for the longest time, Biden said, we're not going to send tanks. That's too escalatory. And then I believe it was in January that he signed off on the tanks. They're going to get US M1 Abrams tanks. And then most recently at the G7 summit, which happened to be held in Hiroshima, Japan, where the US once dropped a nuclear bomb, President Biden signed off. He gave the green light to send US made F 16s to Ukraine for European countries that have them. And these are things, you know, in the early days of the war, Poland said, this is March 2022, they said to the U.S., hey, we have these MiG-29 fighter jets, they're Soviet-made, Ukraine knows how to use them, let's send them over there. And the Pentagon said no, and they said no because they thought Russia might perceive this as the U.S. directly entering the war, but now the MiGs have gone there, Poland sent them earlier this year, and now they're sending the F-16s. So basically the point I'm trying to make here is that Russia has been warning against all these escalations. Russia has 
plenty of pretext if they wanted to, to attack a NATO base, say in Poland, you know, not saying that that would be right. I'm just saying that they have the justification for it if they wanted to do it. So we're at the point now where maybe something could just be too much. At some point we're going to cross, you know, we've crossed a lot of Russia's red lines, but at some point we might cross the point of no return and and it could turn into a full-blown conflict between the U.S. and Russia. I think it's pretty clear that Putin doesn't want to go to war with NATO. And I think Biden says he doesn't want to go to war with Russia because that'll be World War III, nuclear war. He's recognized that right now is the greatest risk of nuclear catastrophe than at any point since the Cuban Missile Crisis. So it's just that's where we're at with the U.S. and Russia is anything. You know, the Russian and NATO planes often encounter each other over the Black Sea. They intercept each other. There was a collision between a Russian plane and a U.S. drone over the Black Sea. What if that was a U.S. plane with an American pilot on board that died? These things can spark something major. And then on the other side of the world, you have a lot of tensions escalating with China, primarily over Taiwan, because in recent years, the U.S. has been increasing military and diplomatic support for Taiwan. The U.S. is flying tons of planes over the South China Sea, sending ships through the Taiwan Strait. That's another issue that's brewing. And what's concerning about that, when you have the hawks in the U.S. talk about Russia, they're talking about a proxy war. They're talking about backing Ukraine against Russia. And while there's still, I think, a long way to go before this might happen, they're, when it comes to China, they're talking about taking China head on, not just using Taiwan as a proxy. Biden has said it himself that if China attacks Taiwan, he'll send troops to fight China. And China's a nuclear power. The U.S. and China can't go to war. That's how People have thought about this for the past few decades, you know, during the Cold War was we can't go to war directly with the nuclear power, but that's been thrown out. And these people are planning a direct war with China. And now you have China and Russia as major trading partners now and doing a lot of business and they share a border. And now you're forcing those two together. And then, I mean, we can go in many directions here from what you've just said, but Looks like things are heating up again in Iran. I left the UAE because I didn't like what was happening with the US and with Iran at the time. And then, I mean, so it's it's not just on one front. This is the piece of the puzzle that I just can't get my head around. It's not like, okay, we're going to focus, you know, everything was the Middle East for two decades. Then they've moved out of there and now everything was moving over to Russia. But now they're going back into the Middle East and now they're going into China as well. And it's like, and at the same time, you've, have all this woke ideology that's making its way through the U.S. military. And it's just, it's absolutely mind-boggling. Now, for your point on how the countries are, how Russia is not stepping up the war a little bit, from what I've seen on the U.S. side is like, well, we gave them this and Russia didn't do anything. So we gave them a little bit more and they didn't do anything. And then we did a little bit more and they didn't do anything. And so that's their justification of continuing to provide more weapons more long-range weapons, tanks, aircraft. I think I was listening to your program this weekend. It was the cluster bombs that there, you know, there's over 100 countries that have signed off on the legal use of cluster bombs. And now they're thinking about sending this on uranium-enriched ammunition that's going to be going over to Ukraine. Like, it's just a, it's an escalation over and over and over again. And just because Russia hasn't had a tactical nuke dropped on somewhere in Europe, they think that it's okay to keep doing what they're doing. It's madness. It's absolute madness. Yeah. And you're right about that. That is the attitude is basically, oh, Putin hasn't done anything yet. So let's keep needling him, keep going. Even though actually you mentioned the depleted uranium ammunition, which is you know primarily used by tanks because it's really dense metal. That's the byproduct of enriching uranium. The British were the first ones to send that to Ukraine. The British have been kind of leading the charge on a lot of these escalations. The first one to send West, say they were going to send their own tanks and uh, they were pushing for the F-16s. So they sent depleted uranium ammunition to Ukraine for use with their tanks. And Putin, in response, at least he says this was a response, deployed nukes to Belarus. So that's a pretty huge escalation. Now, Putin has compared the move to the fact that there are five NATO countries that the U.S. has nukes in in Europe. Germany, Belgium, Italy, the Netherlands, and Turkey. Turkey, yep. So he's comparing it to that, but it's still a big escalation, Russia moving nukes outside of its borders into Belarus. So there are tangible responses to this. If you remember back in October 2022, Ukraine blew up the Kerch Bridge, which connects Crimea to the Russian mainland. After that, Putin started these kind of large-scale bombings of Ukraine's energy infrastructure and other infrastructure 
across Ukraine. He wasn't doing that in the first phase of the war. So that was a huge escalation. So yes, the escalations haven't really been felt yet by the West, but it's just, if that's the attitude, it's just such a dangerous attitude. They're like, well, we could just keep going. And you saw the events recently with this, you know, short-lived uprising or whatever you want to call it that was in Russia and the Hawks in Washington. Now they're frothing at the mouth. They're trying to use this to say, oh, see, this means the aid is working. Russia is falling apart. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. Forget the fact that they have 6,000 nuclear weapons. It's brutal. I just don't even know what to say about some of these things. Like I'm just, I'm absolutely gobstruck. Another thing that I wanted to bring up with what you spoke about earlier is the targeting. Now, I have a lot of libertarians in my audience who are looking at Elon Musk and going, he's bought back Twitter and he's going to clean up things and it's going to be all this truth and stuff like that. A lot of people don't realize that he's donated how many thousands of Starlink terminals over to Ukraine and they are using these for these types of activities. I mean, that is, from my point of view, a huge escalation. If they're using internet and satellites for troop movements and and what's happening on the other side of the border. That's no hero of mine. I just... Mm. Well, that has a big implication. So one thing about that is that Starlink did say, who knows how much truth there is to this, because when they first started sending the Starlinks, there was reports that they were using them for drone with drones to find targets. And then Starlink said, oh, you know, it wasn't meant to be used like that. And they said they made some adjustments so they couldn't do that. But and who knows how true that is? Yeah, I'm sure they didn't send it over there so that they could get on Twitter and send cat photos and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's being used by the military for the purpose of the war. Absolutely. And yeah, that has a big implication because when you talk about World War Three, if this thing really escalates to wars between the U.S., Russia, China, we're going to see type of warfare that we've never seen before. And I think one of those is going to be shooting down satellites and things especially if they're being used because it's satellite data mostly that the U.S. is giving Ukraine for targeting. So, you know, that's just, you know, say things don't escalate to the nuclear level. We're still going to see, I think, a lot of different types of warfare that we've never seen before, shooting down satellites and cyber things and propaganda. I mean, it's going to be so much, you know, things I think we can't even really imagine right now, especially AI, robotics, another reason we, we need to avoid this. So what is your opinion then? Do you think we are already in World War III? I just, I can make a a giant case that we are. It's just not what we're used to. If we're looking for a war exactly as we had seen in World War I and World War II, I don't think that that's going to happen again. Although I was surprised with Ukraine and Russia because it is proper trench warfare in some places. Like it's, I didn't think actually humanity was really going to see this again, but we are seeing war on so many different fronts. There's lawfare, like where... China is going after small islands in the South China Sea. There's what you were just talking about with satellites and things like this. There's cyber attacks. I mean, I even have some people in my audience who was telling me that that giant earthquake in Turkey was some type of weapon, which I have no idea how that works, but it was kind of a warning to Turkey. And it's like, I don't know if that's a true thing or not, but there's just all kinds of weird stuff that we've never dealt with as a species before. Yeah. And I think so. It's tough to say, you know, if we're in World War Three right now or not, I wouldn't characterize it like that at this point. I think we're very close. But then again, if World War Three does break out, I think in the future, you know, we'll look back at this period as the beginning, you know, as the first phase of the Third World War, this proxy war in Ukraine and the tensions really heating up with China on the economic front. There's a lot of, like you said, unprecedented things happening. So, yeah, I mean, there's always the possibility of a war between Iran and Israel breaking out. Tensions have been really high there. So I think that would be another front. Yeah, it's just there's a lot of alarming things happening. Let's talk a little bit about NATO. I've been watching what's been happening with Hungary, with Turkey, who are a couple of places that are not really towing the line with the rest of the the hawks throughout Brussels and these types of countries. What's your opinion or what is your your feeling about what will happen with some of these countries? Yeah, it's tough to say. I mean, Turkey has been a thorn in the side of NATO for a while now, um, especially with this war with Russia, you know. Good, by the way. Good. Like, yeah. Yeah, no, it's good to have that. Definitely. Especially with what Erdogan was trying to do. He was trying to broker a peace deal between Russia and Ukraine in the beginning of the war. 
you know, he was the one, there was this issue with uh, Ukrainian grain not being able to be exported when the war first broke out because the ports were very heavily mined. And it was Turkey that brokered the deal to get the, those ships moving again, which has been pretty successful. So that's what happens when you have countries that are neutral and diplomatic, even though Turkey is a member of NATO, they're certainly not going along with this thing like the other NATO countries are. And Hungary, they definitely have their pretty similar in the sense that Orban keeps in touch with Putin and they want to keep trading. You know, they got exemptions from the Russian oil ban that the EU passed. But what both of them, you know, are doing right now, and I think it's really all they can do. So Finland joined NATO, Turkey and Hungary eventually approved them. Turkey's still holding out on Sweden joining because they say they support the PKK, which is a Kurdish militant group that are considered terrorists in Turkey. So Turkey had more gripes with Sweden than Finland. And Hungary, I think, is still just holding out on approving because they're trying to get leverage from the EU because when Orban was reelected, the EU cut off certain funding to Hungary because, you know, they say they care about democracy, even though he was elected. I don't know what the situation is there, but I think they're kind of holding out just as leverage and that they'll eventually sign off Sweden. Finland was really the big one, though, because they have an over 800 mile border with Russia. And it's a shame because same thing with the Baltic states. You have a lot of people that say, live in Finland, work in Russia, or vice versa. And now these borders are being militarized again. And it's almost, it seems like, you know, the Iron Curtain might be coming back in a way. So yeah, I think, you know, Turkey and Hungary can only resist what is going on so much that both of them, those governments are looking out for themselves in the sense that they're trying to leverage this stuff, it, it looks like. But at the same time, Hungary, both of them have been promoting the idea of peace talks, which is good. We need more countries to do that. Well, I could definitely see Turkey joining BRICS Plus and really realigning themselves with another group of countries. I don't think that they're going to keep going down this direction with NATO in the West. They're never going to join the EU. There's just there's so many cultural differences there. It's just whatever they were hoping for, it's not going to happen. And I think they're going to be completely realigning. Now, as to your point about the Scandinavian countries, the whole thing just absolutely shocks me. And now it's like, my name, Mikkeltorp, is Danish. My family is from Copenhagen. I'm born in Canada, but my family is from Copenhagen. And seeing what's going on with Denmark right now and sending fighter jets and, and training pilots and things like this for the Ukraine war, it's like, what? Like the Scandinavian countries now getting all hawkish and wanting to go in against Russia, like it just doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, I don't get it either. And, you know, they say the rhetoric among all these NATO countries is that if we don't stop Russia and Ukraine, then they're coming into Poland, they're coming into, you know, they're coming for us next. And there's just no truth to that. There's no reason to believe that. So when, like, I just, unless maybe some of them do, I mean, there's definitely history there with the Soviet Union, but, you know, it's pretty clear that Putin does not have designs on conquering Poland and rolling into Germany. You know, that that's certainly, you know, restoring the Soviet empire. That is definitely not his goal. He's never talked about it. Yeah, I think that's absolute fear-mongering and mainstream media latching onto something that's not there. After mm -hmm. spending thousands of hours of researching these things and looking at the history, I've not seen anything that that's his designs whatsoever. The Ukraine is a, a very different situation, and it's not justification that, yeah, he's going to be coming into Germany and Poland and things like that. Yeah, John Mearsheimer, who's like the realist professor who's written a lot about the great power competition and kind of how great powers behave. He always makes a good point. He said before 2014, when there was the coup in Kiev and Russia took Crimea, said nobody ever made the case that Putin wanted to go into Europe. Like it was just not even ever discussed. They only started saying it until after 2014 when they wanted, you know, reason to intervene in Ukraine and give them all the support that they've given them. But yeah, still, it just, I do wonder with those Scandinavian countries, Finland, Sweden, there's a lot of benefits to being neutral. Why are they doing this? I, I think it might be an EU thing. You know, they all, their elites want to be part of the club, the NATO club. But yeah, it's just a, it's just a shame. It's a disgusting club and I wouldn't want to be a member. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. no, the, not the, not the people on the ground, the people, I mean, I have tons of European clients and I love them to death and I, have traveled to Europe 101 times, but what's going on right now in upper levels of EU is absolutely disgusting. And also I want to chime in and I don't want people to listen to this and go, oh, you're a Putin 
sympathizer of Putin. You're on Putin's side. No, I'm not at all. I'm on an anti-war side. I'm on a side that let's hold hands and and get along and figure out ways that we can get through this. But what we're seeing right now is just I'm gonna I'm gonna end up saying this like 400 times during this episode. So sorry for repeating myself, but it's just unbelievable. Like it's mm-hmm. just. I just never thought that we would see these types of things again. And to your point on democracy, Ukrainian president, was he democratically elected to that country? The current president, Zelensky, he was, yeah, in 2019. I thought that was kind of a uh, a CI, maybe once again, I'm putting my tinfoil hat on, but I thought that they overthrew and that this was the US-backed candidate and it was really supported by the CIA. So- that really all happened in 2014, and and it it definitely was a more pro Western government in 2019 when Zelensky was elected. But what's interesting about Zelensky is that Poroshenko, his predecessor, they were all in about the Donbass war that was going on since 2014. Zelensky ran on ending that. He ran on en- making peace with Russia. He was a Russian speaker. His the TV show that he was on, Servant of the People, was in Russian. So a lot of people don't realize that. And there were articles at the time when he was elected, you know, in the Western mainstream media saying he was too pro-Russia. But he ended up kind of the extreme elements in Ukraine didn't let him make peace in the Donbass. And the only real way for that to have happened was that the U.S. would have had to go push for peace in the Donbass. But that didn't happen, unfortunately. They started sending, you know, anti-tank missiles and everything. Well, that started in 2018. But then they really just wanted to keep escalating things. And that was around when Trump was impeached. He was impeached because he held up a missile delivery to Ukraine for about two weeks and then he sent them again. So there's just so much working against resolving that war after Zelensky was elected. And now, yeah, you can't even imagine that he was speaking Russian and calling for peace because he is kind of leading this de-Russification campaign. He's doing like legit book burning in the country now. Like we're going back to medieval times. It's crazy. Yeah, he just banned Russian books and he is, you know, cracking down on the Ukrainian Orthodox Church that has ties to the Russian Orthodox. There's two in Ukraine, but it was the bigger one. And now they're cracking down on it. And yeah, it's really bad. And, you know, you talk about Putin. These are things that he wanted to avoid. These are things that he said was NATO expansion and war against, you know, the Russian culture that was going on in Ukraine were part of his his motivation for invading. And now those things have ramped up. So, yeah, it doesn't it seems like his invasion hasn't really gotten the the results. But the thing about Russia is that they have time on their side and they seem to be digging in for a very long war hoping probably that the West is going to be the one to give up first. And what about Boris Johnson? Like talking about this being a Western backed Boris Johnson, didn't he go over there and we don't know exactly what was happened in closed door meetings, but anytime that there was peace deals on the the table, something has happened, some meeting has happened and all of a sudden no more peace deals. Like, yeah, it's really crazy. I mean, if you look at the beginning of the war, Putin invaded and It was clear at the time I was saying this and a lot of people were mad at me for saying it was that he wasn't going as hard as he could and he was leaving room for negotiations. And there were, you know, U.S. officials said that there were reports in the media that that was their assessment, too, because he wasn't doing that large scale infrastructure bombing like when the U.S. invaded Iraq. They destroyed the infrastructure and killed, you know, thousands of civilians in airstrikes and that that was the opening salvo of the invasion. So it didn't look like he was trying to conquer the country. So there were peace talks in March 2022. They held talks in person in Istanbul. And according to various sources, there was some sort of interim deal on the table that it would have been Ukraine would have declared its neutrality. They would have said they would never join NATO and Russia would pull out of the territory that they captured since February 24th, 2022. And then Boris Johnson was the one that went over to Kiev in April, early April 2022. And according to Ukrainian media reports, he told Zelensky, even if you want to sign a deal with Putin, we don't. And, you know, we're going to go all in on backing you in this war. And Johnson said it himself that he urged them not to negotiate with Russia. So it's no secret that he was saying don't negotiate. At the time, the State Department, I was asking them, are you supporting peace talks? And they, they, you know, they would tell me in a very long-winded way, basically, no, they would say, no, right now we have to give Ukraine all the weapons it wants to give them a good position at the negotiating table. That was their line. 
So it was very clear. And Naftali Bennett, who was the Israeli prime minister at the time, he was brokering between Putin and Zelensky, calling back and forth. And he said that the Western powers blocked his efforts. They ultimately, you know, told him to stop, I guess. So yeah, there's a lot of evidence that they were working against peace in the beginning of the war. And now you look at the situation and it's just hundreds of thousands of people are dead. And we don't know for sure if a peace deal would have been reached then, but we know that the U.S. was working against it. And Turkey actually said it, their foreign minister at the time, because they hosted the peace talks. They said, oh, we thought, you know, things were going to end. This was Turkey's foreign minister at the time. And then there was a NATO summit. And after that NATO summit, Turkey realized that some countries in NATO want to prolong the war to weaken Russia. And then just a few days after that Turkish official said that Lloyd Austin, the secretary of defense, said the U.S. wants to weaken Russia. And then they passed that big $40 billion Ukraine aid bill. So, yeah, it's just it was it's very clear, again, whether or not if a peace deal would have been reached, we can't say for sure. It's just very clear that the U.S. and NATO did not want peace at that time. My friends over at serenitynewsletter.com have a special opportunity open to those interested in learning advanced investing techniques in the crypto space. This membership is of the highest quality and is run by a dear friend of mine who happens to manage one of the most successful crypto hedge funds in the world. Crypto is the future, and those who make smart plays now have an opportunity to earn life-changing returns. Go to serenitynewsletter.com to watch a special video presentation now. That's serenitynewsletter.com. You know, I'm Canadian, you're American. I hate being on this side of things. Like, I hate all of this shit. Like, I just fucking hate it so much, and it just boils my blood. And I just... And what really pisses me off is mainstream media makes out that the Western are the good guys in all of this. And we ain't the good guys. We're not the good guys at all. There are, First of all, there are no good guys, but certainly it ain't us. Like, it just... Yeah, and I mean, the whole narrative, like, just the fact that they call it an unprovoked invasion, and that's just not from the media. That's the Biden administration. If you look at all the rhetoric, if you ask them a question about Russia or anything that's going on in Ukraine, they have to say like nine adjectives before they give you an answer. Say it's unprovoked, brutal, bloody, horrible. And yet like the U.S. is so innocent at the time. You know, we're still occupying Syria and bombing Somalia, but nobody ever talks about that. Well, and Yemen, God, like I lived in the UAE for eight years. I saw Martyr's Day. I was there when all of this happened with the UAE sending troops in and things and how this is all backed by the US. And it was just, I'm just shaking my head at the whole situation and going, how do you think that we're the good guys in any of this? It's just absolutely ridiculous. Once again, I'm not saying that Putin's the good guy. There are no good guys here. But when what Russia wants is to have this border, this barrier between NATO and Russia, you know, this no man's land. And that's what they were asking for with Ukraine. And you can't give them a straight answer. Where Are they going to join? Are they not going to join? Why you keep doing like this? Like you're just, you're poking them in the eye every chance you get. And if it, to go back to our previous conversation, which you mentioned, if Russia or China or anything like that was doing the same in Mexico or in Canada. How do you think that the U.S. would respond to these things? If China had warships off the coast of San Francisco or something like that, what would you think about that? Like, there would be no question about these. But it just seems okay for us to send. And now the U.S. is sending... You correct me if I'm wrong, but this is what I read. U.S. Coast Guard is now in the Taiwan Strait? Like, who's coast? Like, Yeah, Yeah, they just sail through the Taiwan Strait, yeah. U.S. Coast Guard over in Taiwan Strait. That sounds absolutely insane. Yeah, the Coast Guard is really increasing its presence over there near China's coast in the South China Sea. And they've gone through the Taiwan Strait before. They're usually with naval ships, but it's pretty rare. And this time it was just a Coast Guard cutter just sailing through the Taiwan Strait. You're a long way from home. Like, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, so you mentioned the stuff about China. I don't know if you've seen, there's been these reports in the Wall Street Journal about China looking to build a a spy facility in Cuba. I did see this. That seems like a hearkening back to the Cuban Missile Crisis. Like, yeah. So it's not clear exactly what is going on there. But what's interesting, it seems like those reports were timed because Blinken was about to go to China and one of those reports came out. He still went. But Yeah, so we know that the Soviets had an eavesdrop spy facility in Cuba until, and Russia owned it until 2002 when they left. 
And there were reports at the time that China was looking to set up there. So there, there might be some sort of Chinese eavesdropping facility in Cuba. But if you look at the reaction from Congress after that report saying it's, you know, some of them said it was an attack on America, that China was thinking about setting up uh, some kind of spying intelligence gathering facility in Cuba. And if you look at, again, the South China Sea, U.S. surveillance planes are constantly flying around there, you know, pretty close to China's coast, about 30 nautical miles sometimes. And it's suspected, we don't know for sure, that the U.S. does have a spy facility in Taiwan. We know that the U.S. just sent a few hundred troops there, for, and that's the largest U.S. troop presence in Taiwan since 1979, when the U.S. and China normalized relations. And part of that deal was the U.S. pulling its military out. Now it seems like the U.S. is reversing on that. So there's so much. Uh, the U.S. and India signed a deal in 2020 that the U.S. gives India intelligence now to spy on Chinese troops along their disputed border in the Himalayas. So again, if you're concerned about what China's doing in Cuba, there's so much that the U.S. could negotiate. There's so much, so many options there to tamp things down between the U.S. and China that it's just ridiculous to see them say it's an attack on the U.S., but then Ukraine joining NATO, that shouldn't matter to Russia. So it's just, you know, it's really hypocritical. Well, and not just to pick on U.S., let's pick on Canada as well. Canada <laughs> is supposed to be a peacekeeping country and now have sent over billions of dollars worth of heavy artillery to Ukraine over the last two years. They're now sending ships through the Taiwan Strait. Canada, Canada is supposed to be like keeping the peace. What the hell is Canada doing over there? Why why are we over there? Well, and that is, it's like very Orwellian talking points that you see coming out of these governments is that, you know, they say that they are trying to bring peace by sending weapons. And that's the whole U.S. talking point about Taiwan right now is that they're saying we need to arm them to the teeth to prevent a war. And it's, you know, weapons for peace is basically what they're saying. Stoltenberg, the head of NATO, has said that weapons will bring peace. The more weapons we send, the sooner peace will come. But that's clearly not the case. Didn't even Switzerland send weapons or something as well? Switzerland joined in on sanctions. Sanctions, that's what it was. Uh, I don't know exactly how far, but yeah, they've done this. They've frozen some Russian funds. And, and actually, because of that, Russia and the U.S. used to meet in Geneva all the time for negotiations. But now Russia wanted to change the venue for arms control negotiations, which ended up not happening, but they were going to do it in Egypt instead of Switzerland because of that, which is interesting. But yeah, this whole talking point, you know, when it comes to Taiwan specifically, it's very clear what's happening right now. China's been putting Taiwan under more military pressure, but it's in reaction to the U.S. increasing support for Taiwan. So however anybody feels about that situation is that that is the reality because, again, the situation, the whole foundation of U.S.-China relations is this weird situation over Taiwan that the U.S. doesn't recognize Taiwan as a country and doesn't have official contacts with them. But in the last three, four years, actually, it's been longer than that now, really starting under Trump. The U.S. started really fundamentally changing its relationship with Taiwan. And in response, China has increased the military pressure. And China is never going to drop the Taiwan issue. Again, it doesn't mean that it's right or it doesn't really matter how we feel about it. It's just the reality of the situation is in, you know, to the Chinese government, reunification, as they call it, with Taiwan is a priority. But at the same time, they're not in a rush to do it and they don't want to launch a war. Because they have so many, so much incentive not to, you know, the trade across the Taiwan Strait, the travel, there's just a lot of things. Launching a war would be very difficult anyway. And it's not really what that this government in China does. They don't really launch big wars like the U.S. has. And I think they've learned a lesson from what the U.S. has done over the past 20 years in the Middle East. Well, with China, I mean, my wife is from China. My kids speak Chinese. My parents, my mother and father-in-law come here to Panama for months on end, and we own properties in China. And I've spoke to her family about many of these issues. Like A lot of people don't understand actually the history of Taiwan, and they just kind of think that it's always been its own country. Actually, it's a lot more complicated than that. And it actually has to go back to previous world wars we've had and the government of China actually abandoning the people and relocating to Taipei. And so there's a lot of mistrust and a lot of betrayal that 
is in the feeling of the government there. And there was a certain time where they were saying they were the rightful government of China, not in Beijing. So there's pieces of the puzzle that so many people don't understand because they haven't taken the time to look at the history. And it's the same thing with Ukraine. I mean, this is not was a peaceful country and there was no problems. And all of a sudden, one day, just crazy Putin decides he's going to cross the border. It's like, no, there's many things that have led up to this over generations. And I'm not justifying any of this. I'm just saying that we have to actually look at the realities of the situation and try to understand things from other people's perspective. If there's anything that being an expat will teach you, it is to look at the world in other people's viewpoints. I've been traveling extensively for my entire life. And I don't think just as a Canadian or just as a, a North American, I'm always trying to see like, why are they doing this? But mainstream media is always going to paint things only in one direction. It is pure propaganda. It is crafted in a way. They have psychologists and psychiatrists who help them to figure out these things and keywords. And it's, it is not the news. The news should be unbiased. None of this stuff is unbiased, actually, which is a good plug for why you guys should actually check out your work, Dave, because you actually are very upfront about what type of perspective and what type of lens you're putting all of your news out through. It's through a non-interventionist lens. You know, you know where if someone listens to it, what do they want out of this? Well, they want no war. I think it's pretty clear and it's pretty to on point with all of the work that you do. Yeah, that's one thing I like antiwar.com is that our bias isn't in our name. <laughs> so, you know, nobody's going to be fooled by our you know, the things that we're writing, we're very upfront about who we are and what we believe. Yeah. And in that lens, you know, I try to provide the news, you know, just kind of provide the facts. I don't do too much analysis in my show. I, um, I kind of, you know, there's just so many YouTube shows and podcasts where, you know, if you want that, you know, you can go find that if you want to kind of be told what to think about this stuff. But I like to kind of just present the facts again from my perspective, but let people, you know, figure it out for themselves. But, you know, you talk about the propaganda, especially with Taiwan. I remember, you know, when COVID first hit, it was like a World Health Organization official was in some interview and they asked him about Taiwan. And he was like, huh, what? I, I, I didn't hear you. <laughs> he didn't want to talk about Taiwan. And so many people freaked out about it. Oh, the UN, the, the WHO is in you know China's pocket. But it just showed how many Americans don't understand that, you know, the U.S. also doesn't recognize Taiwan as a country. And you mentioned what was even sillier than that was before the U.S. opened up with China was that they didn't recognize China as China. They recognized this little island as the, the rightful government over China. And there's actually a lot of situations, if you look around the world, of breakaway states that aren't recognized by the country's borders that they're within, you know, in Ar Armenian Azer Azerbaijan are often fighting over Nagorno-Karabakh, which is an ethnic Armenian enclave in the what they call internationally recognized borders of Azerbaijan. In Georgia, you know, there's a little breakaway state. It's just it's a pretty common thing. You know, it's a little different with Taiwan because it's an island and it's more it has more kind of geopolitical ramifications, I guess, because it's China and, and the U.S. But, yeah, it's just it's not a completely unique situation. But it definitely is something that more people need to understand. So, yeah, and, and, you know, the fate of the world could be over this this island. And, you know, a big talking point is the, the chips, the semiconductors that Taiwan is, you know, makes most of the world's advanced microchips. But I would say that's a reason to, you know, prevent war from breaking out. And, you know, even if China takes over or say they don't do it with an invasion, they do it politically, which there's not really any political will right now in Taiwan for that. but. Say they come to some kind of understanding, one country, two systems arrangement. We buy all our stuff from China as it is, but right now the U.S. is kind of giving China maybe a reason to deny us things like this because we've been sanctioning their semiconductor industry, trying to prevent them from being able to make these advanced chips. And not just the U.S. doing it, they've convinced Japan and the Netherlands, the Netherlands to do it as well. So it's you know an economic attack on China's semiconductor industry. So, you know, again, that's just one of the big talking points about why we should go to war with for Taiwan. And I think it's a reason why we should prevent a war over Taiwan. Well, and you mentioned Japan. Japan has doubled their, their national military budget over the last year from 2% to 4%. What are they thinking? I mean, who's going to fight that war? This is an elderly population. They have declining birth rates. They don't allow immigration into the country. And what is Japan doing trying to now spend all of this more money? They're going to get in on the game as well and think that they're going to take on China. This is, yeah, once again, insanity. 
Yeah. And, you know, it's, yeah, you mentioned, so Japan, they're doubling their military budget, I think over the next five years, and they're going to get these missiles. And like, this is, and it's all about China. They put out some document, you know, their national security strategy that said China's is the biggest threat to us. The U.S. has said that. So, and it's strange because the economic relationship between Japan and China, between China and the U.S. So it's kind of, it's tough to predict really what's going to happen here. Because if you look at it economically, it's like nobody can afford this war, but that, you know, I guess that hasn't stopped wars from breaking out in the past. So that's one thing I try to, you know, with some of my more right wing listeners or not so much right wing, but the ones that favor, you know, decoupling with China, you know, protectionism. My argument to them is like, I can understand why, you know, you think we should diversify our supply chains and maybe decouple with China in some areas. But, you know, they have to understand that this other stuff that's going, this war that's brewing, because basically if we decouple with China, it's just going to make that war more likely. There's going to be less incentive, you know, not to do it. So that's always a point I try to make with them, like kind of like the MAGA people that, you know, favor Trump's tariffs and everything that Biden has kept in place. Biden's actually escalated the economic war against China. It's kind of that idea that he's soft on China, but that's not really the case at all. Well, and I I have no problem if you want to get your supplies from somewhere else. Let's do it in a free market type of way. Why do we need to do it in this way? This seems like if there's 500 different options, this seems like the absolute worst one possible. Yeah. And Congress just passed that Chips and Science Act. It's like $50 billion in corporate subsidies to get more chip manufacturing in the US. But there is free market ways to give people incentives to build factories here, you know, deregulation and things like that. Um, but instead they're taking, taking a page from the, you know, China's book, the Chinese government's book by doing that, you know, and then when it comes to Japan and the countries in the region, the Philippines, South Korea, all the countries in Southeast Asia, I mean, besides the Philippines are way more on the U S side, but if you look at Indonesia, Singapore, even Vietnam, Cambodia, Cambodia is leaning more towards China, but most of them are trying to play in the middle because they don't want to be any part of this war. That would be a disaster for them because that's where the war is going to happen in Southeast Asia. And that's something for expats. I mean, Southeast Asia is one of the coolest places, you know, I think people could go. I went to Cambodia a few years ago and I went to Singapore too. Singapore is more expensive, but Cambodia, Thailand, I, I mean, these places are awesome and they, in Vietnam and they welcome expats and it's very cheap. You could live really well. And now with the internet, you know, I, I've thought about before I had, a kid and everything. I always thought about doing kind of the digital nomad thing, you know, over there in Southeast because it's so cool and people are so friendly and, you know, that's where the war is going to play out and it's going to be really detrimental to that region. Absolutely. I mean, I've lived in Singapore before. I'd be hard pressed to see them going against the U.S. It's basically a Chinese city. 80% of the population come from a Chinese heritage. Maybe not all mainland China. It's more Hokkien and Tiaochu opposed to Mandarin, you know, the languages on the street and the, the cultural pieces of it. You know, not the Han Chinese, but still, I mean, it's essentially, you know, don't worry about, okay, there's a little bit of Indian, a little bit of Malay, a little bit of blah, 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 blah. But essentially it is a Chinese city. I don't think that they're going to be turning their backs on China and siding with the U.S. And now, okay, yes, you said the Philippines. Okay, Philippines is fully U.S., absolutely. But some of these other countries are kind of in between. So we've kind of, today, we've thrown stones at the U.S. and Canada. That's good. Europe in general, Russia, we look at what's going on in Turkey. I, I'm quite bullish on Turkey in general. You know, we're doing our Turkish citizenship by investment. We're buying a property in Turkey. I see some really good plays there. And then basically Southeast Asia is completely out right now for a place to live. I've traveled all over Africa. I've not found places that would really speak to me as being an expat hotspot. Maybe for some people it is. That's amazing. I have not found that myself. For me, it's Latin America. Latin America seems to be the only place to go in the world right now where you actually have a, a semblance of normalcy, where this woke agenda is not going rampant throughout the countries. You're still talking about food independent, water independent countries. And if there is a nuclear war in the world, I'd be looking down at Southern Brazil, Argentina, Uruguay, this type of breadbasket area of planet Earth as the, the last safe harbor anywhere. Yeah. And they, they're staying out of the whole Ukraine thing. You know, the U.S. is trying to convince a lot of those countries to send weapons, but they're not doing it, which is good. 
So yeah, that's true. Like if you think about geographically, a good place to be, I would say you're probably right down there, Latin America, South America. And these countries are friendly with each other as well. I talk to, I have Argentinian friends and stuff like that. And they know that I love Uruguay and I go back and forth to Uruguay and stuff. They're like, yeah, Uruguay is like our little brother. We love them. You know, they make fun of each other about the football and stuff because Uruguay's won so many times the World Cup. But it's like, it doesn't have these types of tensions. When you get down to Latin America, the border tensions are not like they are in Europe or in some of these other regions in the world. They just don't care. Yeah, I haven't spent any time down there. I gotta, I've got i traveled pretty good, uh, like all around Europe and been to China, Cambodia, Singapore, Australia. We did that trip. My wife's Australian. So we actually, we're going to go there. The plan was to go there once a year, but then COVID happened and go there once a year and stop somewhere in Asia on the way. Because, you know, I really want to go to Japan and more places in Southeast Asia. So we're going to try to get that going again. How's Australia been handling things from the anti-war side of things? Are they sticking their finger in everyone's eye as well? Well, yeah. I mean, the Australian government is going along. They just signed this AUKUS deal with the US and and the UK pretty recently that's going to give them nuclear-powered submarines. And they're not going to get them for like a decade at least. But that's basically putting them on the side of the US in a potential future war over China because the US idea is to turn Australia into kind of like a submarine hub like where they can repair and maintain all their submarines for use against in this war against china and the u.s part of that deal too the u.s is going to be sending more planes over there and bombers and troops so but it seems like there's more there's a big conversation going on within australia of like should we you know if there's a war over taiwan should we be involved so i think that's still being worked out but for the most part it seems like they're going along with it which is unfortunate because China's their biggest trading partner. China kind of went after Australia, which was interesting. So when the U.S. brought the Quad back, which is the Quad is India, Japan, Australia, and the U.S. And it was started in the early 2000s, but India and Australia didn't want to go along because they didn't want to stoke tensions with China because it's basically like an anti-China. It's a foundation for like an anti-China military alliance in the region. But in recent years, they started doing drills again. And that was seemed like a lot of the tensions between China and Australia on the trade front stemmed from that. They kind of went, picked Australia because they were the country that they could go after. So I think that explains a lot of the tensions. So yeah, Australia, they'll probably be, you know, if there is a war, they're definitely going to be involved, I think, at this point. I lived in Australia from 2006 to 2009. In that country, it seems like every three months they change their prime minister, change the president, like... Yes, it's like I never have any idea what's going on over there. I I used to love Australia, but that's watching what they've done during COVID over the last couple of years has just absolutely put a sour taste in my mouth. Yeah, I spent about a month there. It was in 2020 before COVID, though. It was January 2020, and it was awesome. But then when we got back home and COVID hit. Yeah, they did all that, but we'll definitely go back. But I was actually thinking about moving there at the time because my wife, again, she is a citizenship, so it would be easy for us. But then I saw some spiders that were like, you know, this big. And I said, no, nah, <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I lived in Melbourne. We didn't see any spiders like that. But now it's just it's just crazy. All of these countries who are just jumping on the bandwagon, like Australia, like what do you have? Why do you have any skin in the game in Ukraine and China? I mean, yeah, like, WA, like Western Australia, is all about mining. It's all natural resources, and they're shipping natural resources over to China all day long, every day. And now you want to go to war with them? Like, do you guys thinking this through? This is, sounds like a terrible idea. And as going back to our point about Scandinavia, you have an 800-kilometer border, and now you want to have troops stationed there and nuclear warheads they're like, you think that that's a good idea? That's going to protect you? That's not going to protect you. That's going to make you a massive target. Stay out of it. Just everybody, just stay out of it. Yeah, I don't get why that's not more appealing to some of these governments is, is neutrality. You know, it prevented some countries in Europe from being destroyed, you know, during the world wars. And yeah, especially geographically, like Australia, it's just there's no need for them to be involved. They trade with China. There's that, I forget which, it was like an Australian show, I think. I forget what it was called, but it's some comedy show. And they had, you know, this, these generals in a room like, oh, we need to, you know, increase our presence in the South China Sea to protect our trade routes. And they're like, so we need to protect our trade from 
we have to protect our trade from China, but it, but we trade with China. So it's like you're protecting the shipping channels that from China, but you're buying all your stuff and selling all your stuff to China. It just doesn't make any sense. And that's kind of the talking point that if China takes control of the South China Sea, they're going to shut it down for international trade. But China is completely reliant on, you know, selling things. And it's just, you know, it just doesn't make much sense to me. And that's another thing I know in Australia is the propaganda is crazy. If you look at any Australian media, especially Australian, like 60 Minutes, it's just war with China is all they're talking about. So they're really getting it pretty bad over there. Well, because I work in the offshore markets and I deal with a lot of the tax things, Australia has just branded anywhere that has no tax as just like evil, horrible Satan worshippers. <laughs> it's just, it's it's crazy. And the propaganda is is very strong there on many fronts, not just on the war hawkish side of things, but on many, many fronts. Okay, well, today's conversation has not been a, an overly happy conversation. I think it's an important one. I think it's an extremely important one and very timely and and one that people who are considering moving overseas really have to think about. So not a happy conversation, but but do you have any, you know, light at the end of the tunnel for us? Do you have anything that maybe we'll do a 180 and and people will come to their senses or anything that we should be focusing on where it is not so dark and I and I'm speaking specifically about the subject matter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think really the, the best thing that we have to hope for is that more people and, you know, we kind of live now in this new media environment where there's so much access to different information. Cause we always talk about all oh, the mainstream media, this, the mainstream media, that, but so many people are turning away from that. And I mean, I think a few good things that are happening in the US right now is just that in general that you know the biggest media is is not you know CNN or Fox News anymore and you see uh one thing that i think is exciting is RFK Jr's presidential campaign you know there's a lot of issues that i don't agree with him on but when it comes to Ukraine he's very good on it and he knows he says all the right things and he's a democrat he's running as a democrat so i think he's going to get that message more because we really just need more people to oppose this stuff for any change to happen. So I hope that there's more change there that just him being a force on the presidential as a presidential candidate, whether or not he makes it to the, any kind of debate with Biden or is actually in the primary. I think it's kind of a force that they can't ignore at this point. So hopefully that changes some things. And then when it comes to the right in America, you know, there's still the majority of Republicans in Congress support this whole Ukraine proxy war, but I think the majority of Republican voters don't. And that's changed over the past year and a half. And I think that's going to continue to change. So, and I think more people are waking up to this stuff with China. So I just hope that that momentum keeps going. And I think part of it is just kind of getting people educated on it. And that's what I try to focus on. So that's what motivates me. And yeah, and you know, I live in the US, I live out in the country in Virginia, and I have a very nice, peaceful life with my wife and kid. And so, you know, there's still, it's not like all doom and gloom in my life. I actually live a really great life. That's part of the reason why I'm trying to get this message out, because one thing that could really disrupt it is a world war. I mean, we're all going to be affected and you just got to get the message out there. And, and it's something I'm trying to think of, too, is a, a better way. That's why we do kind of we're single issue is that we try to get our message out to everybody. And it feels like lately a lot more people have been listening to us. And I just hope we can just reach as many people as we can. So, yeah, that's what keeps me going is that we could change some minds and actually avoid this whole mess. That's my hope. <laughs> Brilliant. Dave, I love the conversation. Very important one today. If my listeners want to get a hold of you, if they want to find out more about your writing, about the podcast, where can we send them? Yeah. So if you go to antiwar.com, that's where all my writing is. I'm mostly in the news section at the top of the page. I kind of write short news stories every day. Listen to my show, Anti-War News with Dave DeCamp. Uh, most people listen to the podcast version. It's also on YouTube or Rumble or Odyssey. You can follow me on Twitter at Dave. And if you want to shoot me an email, DaveDeCamp at ProtonMail.com or news at antiwar.com goes to that too. So yeah, that's it. That's where people can find me. That's all my stuff. Amazing. And once again, I'm a big fan of your work. So keep doing it. I love the podcast. I'm one of the audio listeners of the podcast. I'm actually, this is our first call together. So I've never seen what you look like before today because I just hear you on the audio. <laughs> but big fan of your work and it's really important. So please keep doing it, okay? Because you, you are reaching a lot of people. Yeah, I appreciate that. And thanks for having me on. 
Schooling for international families has always been a massive problem in the expat space. Families move around, change countries, and the kids never get to build solid relationships. Sometimes families even end up having to head home because there is not a viable option for education. Together with my business partner, Michael Strong, we have a goal to change this. At expatschool.io, we have world-class programs for children between the ages of 8 and 19. Our virtual school is a thriving community of happy, bright, and adventurous children. Go to expatschool.io to learn more about our program for your children or grandchildren. That's expatschool.io. Expatschool.io. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.